1: Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. I'm John Plotz, a science fiction scholar from the Brandeis English department, and uh, since our topic today counts as science fact, I'm joined by a very special co-host, Gina Torgiano, a brilliant Brandeis neuroscientist. Are there any other kind of Brandeis neuroscientist Um, and Gina you always pick the best episodes to host so listeners may recall her awesome conversation with Madeline Miller about her novel Circe way back in uh, February of 2019 and Gina I'm going to turn over to you for the honor of introducing today's guest.
2: Great, thanks John well it's absolutely wonderful to have Elizabeth Colbert here uh, to continue our conversation about her thought-provoking new book Under a White Sky the nature of the future. Um, Elizabeth is a journalist and science writer who's written three books, including the Pulitzer Prize winning Sixth Extinction, um, writes extensively for the New Yorker magazine on issues of climate and the environment. And her books are just engaging, thought-provoking, occasionally deeply frightening, um, and have had a really tremendous impact (laughs) on my own thinking about human impact on the planet and where we go from here. So, Elizabeth, um, welcome
0: to Recall This Book. Thanks for having me.
1: So, so Elizabeth, we'd like to begin, um, if you want to take up the invitation, just by inviting our guests to speak briefly about the book in question, White Sky, it's, uh, highlighting you know, maybe what you think its key questions are or its key conclusions, and then we can go from there.
0: Well, I mean, the book is about human impacts on the planet in the biggest possible sense, and I hope really brings home how... Uh, thoroughgoing those are, how ubiquitous those are, and how very serious they are. And what it's really looking at is how do we, you know, we've had this sort of uh, control of nature attitude. Um, It's in all of our engineering, a very gung-ho, you know, man against nature attitude. And now we are realizing and we're bringing that same attitude, I would guess I would say, to a nature that we ourselves have remade. And ha- what happens then? What happens when um, we confront these this nature that bears all of our own fingerprints, but often does not behave in ways that we we like then, ultimately, even though in many ways we're responsible for that. And, and so I wanted to look at the sort of remade world that we have and, and, and how we're going to respond to that you know, you'd have to be a pretty um, hard-hearted reader, how's that, Uh, not to come away um, feeling, you know, feeling implicated, first of all, and feeling that there are a lot of ethical questions that are raised here, both, you know, in the case of the sixth extinction towards other species and potentially in um, under white sky towards, towards other humans. And the fact that we... I think that also, you know, one of the complexities, which I do not go into very deeply in either of the books, but um, which I think that the books both also implicitly raise, is that sometimes our, you know, what we would consider our obligations to other people and what we would consider, you know, the right thing to do vis-a-vis other species, those are not necessarily the same things. Those may be intention. They may even contradict each other. So, um, that is, you know, that's the situation that we're in. As I say, being a journalist, I don't feel that it's my obligation to offer the answers. Maybe I'll leave that to the academics.
1: You talked about, you know, growing up, I guess, back in the 70s, you know, that era of uh, a kind of romantic environmentalism, you know, a notion of wilderness, which, I, I mean, I know it goes far, far back. Be- beyond the seventies, but for me as a kid in the seventies, I remember these sort of green earth, you know, the posters we made in second and third grade. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, your own arc of thinking about that, you know, from um, uh, save the wilderness vision to, you know, the the sort of environmental, uh, both environmental actions and environmental possibilities you see nowadays, you know?
0: Well, I do um I was you know very much influenced as a kid by trips I made out west to the western US which I now you know would realize was already you know profoundly you know altered landscape. Um but to me that was you know this was pretty wild and this was pretty amazing and um I I guess you'd almost say it was a, you know, it's part spiritual, part aesthetic, part ethical, but, you know, we, we need to hold on to these places, these landscapes, the everything that depends on these landscapes, and I, I felt that quite strongly from an, from an early age, because of those experiences, I I actually grew up in the suburbs of New York, where, you know, there wasn't much left alive, you know, and, (laughs) um, you know, everyone had gone through, and, um, you know, sprayed everything with DDT doubtless, and um, you know, that had been banned, but you know, everyone's garden had no weeds and and that was probably the result of, of pesticides. You know, we didn't have any, I, when I look back on it, you know, we didn't have really frogs, you know, around which there must have been, you know, so, so everything had just been um, denuded of life in some way. Um, and That I found really disturbing, even as a kid. Then in my journalistic career, I spent a long time writing about politics, honestly. So I wasn't really thinking about these questions. And when I came to think about them, you know, the world had moved on and um, there were these huge questions that many, you know, the scientists were grappling with, you know, and they're still grappling with. And, you know, the question of um, what is the right approach to take? You know, is it? to you know manipulate things on a whole new level or is it to try to back off as much as possible which is something that you know we spoke about when I was visiting Brandeis that is a that is a really you know profound question and and Ed Wilson one of his last books you know called Half Earth and it talks about um, how we should be setting aside half of the surface of the earth basically for um, other species to live in. And, you know, that's, um, there, you know, there's a tremendous number of problems with that. You know, there's a lot of people living in these places that you might want to, you know, quote unquote, set aside. Um, and there are huge pressures on them, the Amazon, you know, the Congo basin. Um, but that is, you know, you know, Ed, Ed Wilson's not stupid. He certainly realized, you know, there's climate change, there's all these things going on, but his, his point basically was, um, you want to leave as much space as possible for evolutionary processes to take place, even as the whole world is changing. If you don't leave space for animals to move, species to move around for these new interactions, um, you know, you're know, you just going to get this really uh, impoverished ecosystems. So that's another sort of approach. It's, it's a much less interventionist approach on some level, although it's also on some level intensely interventionist. so we we are um you know we are in a situation right now I would think and I say this without fear of contradiction. um you know, where there are there are no easy answers. you know, you can't say anything let's let's just do this. That would be easy. There, there's just no there's just none of that the, those those have all been foreclosed
2: and you know the other element of this um, that you know. touch on a bit in the book and also in our previous conversation is it's not just coming up with a with a engineering solution on the part of scientists it's coming up with um, the political will to implement um i mean i was just thinking about the um american chestnuts right um and this is a great story it was just in the new york times but you know i've been reading about it for years now the idea of just introducing a gene into the american chestnut that comes from other plants that are already resistant to the blight. This is so it's a simple process of moving this gene into the chestnut and it actually saves the trees. And of course these this was a huge you know fraction of American forests throughout the you know the the East, great food source, I mean just incredibly sort of foundational basis of this rich ecosystem, right? And so we you know it seems completely obvious that the right thing to do would be to you know introduce this tree back into the forests with this simple gene, you know, genetic change. And yet there's incredible resistance to that idea, right? And, you know, it's the fear of unintended consequences. And this is a case, I think, where you could look at it, you know, I would say as a, as a scientist who thinks about these things in a fairly sophisticated way, this seems like a pretty good bat to me. Like it's not such a, but of course something could go wrong but then the alternative, as you say, is potentially worse, right? That we we're watching, you know, most of the major tree species in the United States dying off from different kinds of blights that we could potentially fix.
0: Well, I think the chestnut is a really good um, example, and um, you know, I, I talk about it briefly in the book, and I when I actually went to and did that piece on hawaii that very first piece that sort of got me going on this i went out at the half a piece about hawaii and they sort of two-thirds of piece about hawaii and a third of the piece is about the chestnut and i went and i talked to those guys out in uh, syracuse um bill powell is really the guy who's responsible for it and it's kind of was interesting in a this is also a bit of an aside, but, you know, they worked really, really hard on that. Now with CRISPR, they could have done it in, you know, five minutes. Okay? so But, you know, it's been a 25-year project. They started 25 years ago when the techniques were not nearly as um, sophisticated. And um, that is a case, I think that genetic engineering, you know, is a case where unfortunately there's been And I'm not saying you shouldn't be careful with genetic engineering because Lord knows you should be, but there's just been this weird, you know, there's so many things we're doing to mess up the world. And it's interesting that genetic engineering of certain things has become, I mean, it's just very hard to understand or explain. I mean, the Europeans are not eating, you know, GM corn. We eat it every single moment of every day. Um, they will not accept GM corn that comes from other parts of the world. So other parts of the world are not using it. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting and how that happened, you know, a a history should probably be written about that. And that whole anti-GM, you know, is a really interesting um, and problematic, I think very problematic. Hey,
1: Elizabeth, can I jump in on that? I love that point about the counter example. What would a, good counter example be of something that we ought to be as worried about or more worried about than genetic engineering but in fact has for political reasons or ideological reasons gone under the radar
0: well you know you're 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 driving your car is probably worse mm. for the world than this uh you know um mm. putting this gym GM chestnut out there this this and and the thing that's almost you know, I mean, I don't want to trash people on this podcast, but you know, people say, "Well, we shouldn't be doing this GM ch- chestnut. We should be crossing the chestnut with the Asian chestnut and then back crossing it." You know how much non-native genetic material is going to be in that chestnut mm. tree is way more than is in this. So, like, you know, once mm. again, I, I'm not a geneticist. So I don't want to claim any great knowledge, but but unfortunately, there's just a lot of bad thinking going on in that front. And I completely agree with Gina. This does seem pretty close to no brainer. It's a, it's a gene from wheat and people have in fact discovered, I believe subsequently, and this is going to be a very interesting turn in the genetics debate that that gene is actually there. It's just not turned on. Huh. And so with CRISPR, you're going to be able to turn things on that weren't turned on and um then it won't even be GM. And the USDA has already just said that. So you have a lot yeah. of plant breeders out there looking for these genes that they can click on um, and not call the thing GM. And that's that's going to be huge. Now, do I think that's Jim? Do you think that's Jim? These are all, you know, interesting philosophical questions, but as far as food products are concerned, that is already, that, you know, cow has already left the barn, as it were. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the... The GM chestnut. Now the problem we get into with the GM chestnut, I want to say, is you know, the forest has also moved on, you know, so it's not clear, you know, where are you planting these things? They take 100 years to grow. You know, you're uh-huh. not getting the forest back um, of the past, and you're not getting the creatures that depended on that chestnut back. I mean, there's probably a bunch of you know, small things, probably insects, you know, that went extinct when the chestnut tree uh died out. But I, I basically agree, I, I don't see why we wouldn't want uh, that chestnut out in the world. And we're going to keep, keep, as Gina also alluded to, we keep confronting this now all our ash trees are dying. Now people have, I believe, looked at trying to genetically modify an ash tree. Um, I think it's very, very hard when it's a predatory insect. It's much easier, you know, when, some things might be pretty easy to engineer resistance to and some things are going to be very, very difficult to engineer resistance to.
1: Hey, Gina, can I ask you, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I, how how would you answer the question I asked Elizabeth? Because I feel like I'd, I'd like to know your thoughts about this too. Like, what are other things that we are easily willing to accept that we don't accept with GM? You know, how do you understand the like world of trade-offs?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think the example Elizabeth brought up is sort of perfect. Like we accept all sorts of hybrids that are creating a new organism. And it's unpredictable how that organism will behave. Um, Much more devastating, I think, is that um, genomes are moving all over the planet all the time. Another point that Elizabeth makes in her book. And this is something that humans have facilitated greatly. I mean, it used to happen anyway, um, but it took much more time. It was harder for organisms to travel these great distances. Now we're bringing them all over the world on airplanes or shipping them on, you know. So, so all of that genetic mixing is happening all the time. And it's at a, such a, an enormous level that's impacting all of the ecosystems on the planet, right? So, um, so I guess a very rational thing, like introducing a gene that is already there, turning it on, whatever, you know, the, some of these simple modifications are way, way less problematic than the things that are happening constantly, um, unintentionally, right? And yet, by design, they could have a positive impact if they were done well. And so, like, this just brings up the whole dilemma. This seems like a simple, like, pretty clear answer in the case of maybe the American Chestnut or some other things. But then when you start to get to things like um, injecting particles into the sky to reflect the sun, we're in a whole different Level of um, complexity where the unintended consequences are potentially, inor- I mean, you know, planet devastating, right? And I don't know how you weigh those. I mean, I don't know what precedents we have for that. And, and the, I don't think we understand the um, planetary, you know, ecology and, um, you know, weather systems and climate systems well enough to really know exactly what those things do. We could look at volcanoes and so on, right? So, so I don't know. Um, I mean, I think that the, the great line in your book, Elizabeth, you know, the question of whether um, you know dimming the fucking sun is a better, you know, a better alternative than not doing it is like exactly where we may find ourselves sooner than we thought, you know. So then the question is like, how do you how do you make how do you make those those calls? Who makes those calls?
1: Before we pivot to introduce our other two speakers on this uh, podcast, I just wanted to ask, I want to go back to Gina's point about the deeply frightening, because that's definitely been my response to your both the books of yours that I've read, which I, I love them and they scared the bejesus out of me. So I guess sure. my question for you is like, how do you, are you frightened by the the things you uncover and report on or how do you think about it? How do you get through the day without?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, they're very frightening. if you're if you're not frightened about what's going on right now, uh, I think you you know you're you're not paying attention. Um, and I think you know honestly, what's really frightening, even more frightening than I could have anticipated on some level was what would happen to you know, American politics um, you know, so that we could have, you know, it was very been pretty depressing to cover climate change for quite a while, and we recently had, you know, some, some good news, the first piece of climate change legislation, so that, that's good news. I want to applaud that, but, you know, in the interim, we've also had, um, you know, these crazy conversations around COVID, so if you thought that, um, you know, we were going to be able to solve or or deal with, I shouldn't say solve really, a problem as immense and complicated as climate change, when we can't even you know, agree on whether we should get vaccinated against a deadly virus. That's, you know, that has made even me. <laughs> I thought I thought I was pretty inured to things, but I, I found that very frightening, really, really frightening. I don't know, I don't know how we can confront um problems that are much more ethically and scientifically Complicated than than COVID, which you know was was a huge problem. Don't don't get me wrong, uh, but it was a fairly straightforward pro- problem that we understood. You know, a novel pathogen. Uh, if we can't even agree, you know, on the most basic things, most basic, yeah, public health measures.
1: Okay, well, on that cheerful note, we're going to make a (laughs) generational pivot because I'm delighted to announce today that as part of, uh, recall this book, we're welcoming two first year Brandeis students who were winners of a contest open to all the students who were reading Elizabeth, your book, White Sky, because it was selected as the first year class read as part of the Helen and Philip Brecker New Student Book Forum. So I'm going to introduce first um, Hetty Yang, who is from Montgomery, New Jersey, and is interested in pursuing economics and environmental studies at Brandeis. And you might be interested to know she has a 1032 day streak going on Duolingo. Uh, well, and then I'm also going to- in what language, Hetty? Yeah, that's a good question, Hetty. What, more than one language or just one?
3: No, just one. Um, I'm actually learning Esperanto. And to be honest, I haven't learned all that much. It's just like doing the lessons every day, <laughs> um, but it's like nice to keep the street going, so. Wow,
0: cool. that's great, okay.
1: That is great. And then uh, our the second guest host is uh, Shri Raman from uh, Arlington, Mass. uh, Who plans to study biology, neuroscience, and business at Brandeis University. And her summer reading highlight was Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, which Nidi, I don't know anything about that book, but that sounds cool. And I'm really glad to have both of you. And can we just invite you to take the conversation away?
4: Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, About that book, that is an amazing book. So I highly recommend to anybody who wants to read it, who's interested in it, it's a great book. But switching more to a literary side, I'm a big reader. So when I noted, when I saw that you talked about Frankenstein in your book, I, my interest was like, oh, I've read that book. And (laughs) my question to you is, in your book, you mentioned the novel Frankenstein, and you noted about how that cold and gray environment in Europe led to that story. And whenever I think of climate change and the environment, I think of one of my favorite books, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. And he talks about this post-apocalyptic world covered in ash and clouds and it's gray everywhere. And so I'm wondering how you think our changing environment will change the stories we continue to say in the future. And if you think there's a type of story that will be more prominent, or if there's a new type of story that might emerge,
0: well, that's a great question, you know, and people have sort of been, you know, there's this whole sort of, there's this whole genre now that's been named cli-fi of, and they tend to be, you know, pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty bleak, um, you know, sort of you know, post-apocalyptic or, or even during apocalyptic, you know, uh, stories. And a lot of them, you know, some of them take on climate directly, some maybe more obliquely. Um, but I think that, um, you know, one of the interesting things, I mean, I guess I would say, I don't think climate change has gotten its sort of great literary treatment yet. I look, I look forward to the great clarifying novel. How's that? Um, and I think it's a very hard, I think it's a very hard story because it's such a, um, it's, it's so, it is so ubiquitous and it's so big and sprawling it's not it doesn't have like a, it's not not even like nuclear armageddon which is 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 an event at least at least you get a you know a lot of bombs going off um but um I think increasingly I guess if I had to say I think increasingly it's going to suffuse all literature you know all contemporary literature is going to increasingly have a climate change element because you know we're all it's going to increasingly affect our daily lives, it's going to be hard to not have that um, in there. So I, but I, you know, I'm not, not a novelist. And I, I know a lot of people working on different, different projects of trying to sort of imagine a, a future, the future for us um, in a creative way. And I, I do think that's important that we, that we, do that because I think that, you know, most people aren't reading latest, you know, science paper. So it is important to have something that people can access, um, through other medium media.
2: Yeah. Kind of creating possible, even positive visions for where we could go. I think there is. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I think that it's hard. It's really hard, you know, because it's such a global story. And because to create a positive vision, I I can't remember if we discussed this on the ministry for the future um, is a pretty recent book by Kim Stanley Robinson, sci-fi, quiet fi, -fi, definitely. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's quite a sprawling book because, you know, basically climate change requires, you know, so much, a huge um, change in how we live and how we do things and how we think. And he, so he, you know, he tried to take that on and I think it's been quite a successful book, um, but you have to be willing to talk about a lot of pretty heavy duty, uh, you know, he takes some, you know, quantitative easing, I mean, he, has, he takes some interesting digressions there that that I guess a lot of readers followed him on. I, I'm, I was sort of surprised by that and impressed by that, I have to say, because I wouldn't have necessarily anticipated it.
1: I actually have a footnote on that, which is that I was in in, um, Austria and Czechoslovakia this summer. And in both places, I talked to sort of Eurocrats who mentioned that book. That was the first thing they wanted to talk about. So I I was also surprised that people were willing to follow him down the quantitative easing rabbit hole. But I think he has (laughs) a gift for changing (laughs) scales. You know, there's this guy, Rob Nixon, has this concept of slow violence. Like, I think it's like what you were saying, Elizabeth, things that are invisible at in the ordinary apocalyptic timescale, like as you said, like a nuclear bomb, we all know what that means, but these slow processes are harder to conceptualize. And uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, I feel like that's really interesting to like think about how almost sometimes you like take for granted the settings that many of the books that we read now take place in, how that's gonna be so different um, in the future. So I guess shifting almost from like a future perspective and what books are gonna look like in the future to more of a historical one, um, I guess my question to you, Elizabeth, now is that I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts about, like, environmentalist, environmentalist history. Um, and as you write, like, specifically in your book about Rachel Carson in particular. Um, I mean, I'm sure we all know that Carson was very influential in bringing the environmental crisis to light in like the 50s and the 60s with her book Silent Spring. Um, but you also mentioned in your book that, you know, her recommendation of using invasive or, like, non-native species as pest control had pretty negative effects as we see through things like the Asian car. So what would you say about Carson's overall legacy? And are there any other environmentalists um, who you feel like whose work are especially notable, you know, whether for positive or negative reasons?
0: Well, I, I think, you know, Rachel Carson's um, legacy is, you know, super impressive of that. I don't think there there's hardly any there are hardly any books where you say, well, that really, you know, changed the course of, of history. And, and Sound Spring really did for, for reasons that are not, you know, entirely clear. People have a little bit of a hard time figuring out why was that book such a huge hit. And, you know, one theory has it that, um, it was a, a time when people were, were waking up to the dangers of, of nuclear fallout too. So we had all of these, um, you know sort of silent um a new generation of things where you, you know you, you wouldn't you wouldn't see them or smell them or sense them but they're very dangerous um and that really i think resonated with people you know already concerned about nuclear fallout and that was when we were still doing above ground nuclear testing and people were discovering that every little kid's teeth you know had uh radioactive decay products in them um So it was a monumental book, um, led to congressional hearings, led to bans on certain pesticides, um, which, you know, I can say from personal experience, um, I'm pretty much as old as Silent Spring, exactly. In fact, um, you know, there are now eagles back in the Berkshires, which there had not been for generations. That is a, a product of Silent Spring, you know, getting rid of DDT, which was um, really bad for birds, a lot a lot of birds in addition to a lot, a lot of insects, um, and a lot, a lot of fish. Um, so that's been that's been that's been huge now. Um there's a lot of, you know, there's controversy about it. I don't I don't want to there there is some controversy about it. You know, we we don't produce DDT. Some countries still do produce DDT, has it, you know, led to deaths from malaria that could have been prevented. So it's not, it's not a straight I don't want to say there isn't, um, there aren't um, other impacts that I could have focused on, but from my perspective, it was a a largely very, 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 very important and very, very positive book. Now, at the very end of Silent Spring, uh, Rachel Carson advocates this um, use of biocontrol, right, as a way, as an alternative to pesticides and herbicides. And, you know, That was not her, you know, she wasn't the person, first person to come up with biocontrol. You know, biocontrol had been practiced, was being practiced even at the time. So I don't, um, you know, I don't kind of blame her, as it were, for these biocontrol efforts gone awry. Um, But I do think it is interesting in a way, I mean, it's pretty interesting that someone who was very um keenly sensitive to the ways that we were perturbing the natural world does seem to have had a slight you know blind spot to what the potential ramifications were of moving all these predatory insects uh, that was mainly what she was talking about um around the world and and uh you know we've we've seen you know the carp you could argue were t- was taking Uh, her too literally. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, there are lots and lots of examples of things that were brought in to chase around other things that have had very, very damaging impacts.
4: I think another figure that I also noted a lot in your book was Henry David Thoreau. And so I'm just curious as to if you, why did you take inspiration from him? Because I noticed, like, in three different times, you talked about him. And I was also wondering what you think Thoreau represents in the environmental mo- movement.
0: Well, that's a really good question. These are all really good questions. So, Thoreau is sort of the I'll call him the father of nature writing in the in the American tradition. So, he is sort of the touchstone, if that makes sense. And so in in a purely from a literary standpoint, he he just towers stands over everything and everyone is in his in his shadow and that you know in some level includes includes Rachel Carson who I'm sure had read Thoreau. Um, and he you know wrote a lot. <laughs> There's always a Thoreau quote you can find um because he he's pretty prolific. Um, and he was very, very deeply interested, you know, long before uh most people were in what people, what our relationship was to the natural world. Now, in a lot of ways, Thoreau is, of course, you know, very, very dated. Um, You know, he lived not all that far from Brandeis. Um, It was already a very, very, as people point out, you know, when he went out to Walden, it was already a a deeply changed, you know, landscape. Um, And it was changing really fast. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he went out to Walden. It was it was changing so fast the railroad was coming through, et cetera, et cetera. So um, you know, he he's I've read Thoreau with students. He is not, you know, wildly popular with them anymore. It used to be something you had to do when you went to, you know, college. Basically, you probably you took any class whatsoever on, you know, the American natural naturalist tradition, you you would have to read Thoreau. He's very dense. Um you know, he's, he's you know, he's dated, he's from the 1840s, what can I say, he's not politically acceptable in certain ways, although he was very, very ahead of his time in many, many other ways, in many ways, most ways, I would say. Is
4: there something that you would want, you would tell, like, every student to read of Thoreau's work right now, like, is there? a
0: certain... <laughs> You know, I would read the first couple, like, the first 75 pages of Walden, I do think that they still speak to um, still speak to us in the way that we are prisoners of a lot of it was also he was rebelling against social conformity um, and the way that we are prisoners of our possessions and the way and and what people think of us and certain ways of doing things and I think that um, that still it, it, the, the language as I say is 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 tough. It can be very tough um, because he writes these, you know, magnificently long sentences. Um, but I think that if if people gave it the time, if you have some time to read the first 75 pages of Walden, I I would really still recommend it. It's 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 quite uh, amazing writing, and it has a lot, a lot to think about it.
3: Um, I wanted to ask almost like a forward-looking question in a way. I mean, I know at the end of your book, it's meant to convey a sense of like, we don't know what solutions should be taken. Um, There's that sense of like uncertainty and ambiguity. Um, But I kind of did just want to touch upon like almost like an environmental justice side of it in a way, because many of the solutions that you explain in your book, I feel like occur in first world countries or take generally pretty high levels of um, industrialization or technology that like not all countries have in order to put into place. Um, but I do also recall that you mentioned in your book that countries that contribute less to the crisis, um, which you know are typically less developed countries in the global South, shouldn't be responsible for fixing the crisis. So, um, I guess, what do you think is the role of different countries or like agents in solving the crisis, and um, should countries be more focused on development or conservation?
0: Well, you know, this is the great uh, dilemma of our time, I think, or a one of the great dilemmas of our time has that, and. You know, I guess if I were to give you the um, sort of um, upbeat answer, I would say, well, there shouldn't be, we shouldn't see a tension between those two two things. There should be, you know, there are the sustainable development goals. We should be able to, everyone should have a um, decent standard of living without, you know, continuing to destroy uh, what's left of the natural environment. Um, You know, unfortunately, I think the reality on the ground is a lot more complicated, as you allude to, Um, and we generally see, you know, in a lot of countries, not all countries, I think some countries really have put sustainability way higher up the, um, you know, list of priorities than others, but we do often see Countries letting sustainability when when whenever the economy gets soft and you know um, it really falls to the bottom of the agenda and and all countries and I'm talking from the U.S. and China to much smaller you know poorer countries um, gin up sort of gin up crank up the economy at the expense of sustainability and I you know, think this, you know, this gets us back to ministry for the future, you know, obvious, I shouldn't say obviously, but, um, you know, the huge inequities in consumption are, they are completely unsustainable in my view, you know, American levels of consumption are, if universalized around the world, you know, we will have an unlivable planet really, really fast. (laughs) So we in the US, I think you know, we need to look at it from both directions, both from, um, you know, how other, how people around the world can have what we would consider to be a decent standard of living. Um, but we also need to be looking very, very seriously at, at our own standard of living, which is probably, you know, at, at the heart the heart of the problem. Um, and we need, you know, people have talked about this idea of convergence, that's vis-a-vis carbon emissions, we should all be emitting the same amount of carbon, we now emit m- many, many hundreds of times more than many people in different parts of the world. Um, and if you see that as a stand-in for consumption in general, you know, we should be aiming for that. Now, that's a lot easier said by me sitting here in the US and, you know, my own, you know, pretty comfortable house uh, than it is done. And I don't have the mechanism by which we could even do that. Um, but I'm very sympathetic to countries that are trying to bring up the standard of living for their own people. Um, but I do think it is a tragedy if that's going to come at the expense of the Amazon rainforest, of the Congo Basin. Those are just irreplaceable uh, resources. And that, once again, is being said by an American you know, who lives in New England where we chop down every tree you know, that was there, and it has since grown back, so we think of New England as kind of a, you know, woody place, but if I'd come, if I were right where I'm sitting right now, 200 years ago, you know, in Thoreau's days, uh, everything would have been cut down. All
4: right, I have one more question, so I'm curious as to why you chose the title Under a White Sky, because I thought that I, when I was reading, I feel like that was such a small portion of the book, like it wasn't the Asian carp or anything of a big topic. So that's my question to you.
0: Yeah, well, that that is a very good question. Naming a book is, it's not that easy. You know, I thought a lot about what this book should be called. And in fact, the French decided to call it, um, in the French, it's called The Fish in the Desert. So you could have called it, you know, you could have named it um, a lot of different things. Nothing seemed to capture the whole book, maybe it's sort of too many disparate parts shoved into one book. But I liked Under White Sky because it seemed to encompass the whole idea that you are living, you're going to live under. Even the sky, the color of the sky, was not going to be the same. So I um, that that was why eventually I went with it. I thought it had a kind of um, you know ominous quality to it but also kind of unsettling. You don't know exactly what it refers to until you get pretty deep into the book. Um, but that it had a, it was, it was capacious enough, has that to take in the book. Whereas the fish in the desert, which is fine with me, you know, it's sort of like uh, that's really doesn't seem to take in the whole book. But right. I had a really hard time finding a title for it. I thought about it a lot. But it's a very—we have a very visceral reaction to the
2: idea of the color of the sky changing. It's a such a visible uh, alteration of our environment, whereas so many of the other things that are happening yeah. are, are subtle and slow, and you know. But but uh, but that really kind of strikes you um, with a little bit of horror, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, that was definitely what I was what I was what I was aiming for.
1: Yeah, I guess maybe the answer about things are only frightening when they're perceptible. So that's part of the value of writing and of wonderful journalism, you know, is to make things perceptible. Uh, well, uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation. And thanks again, Needy and Hetty. I want to thank you for your part in this conversation. It's great to have you. Um, uh, recall this book, I should say, is sponsored by Brandeis and by the Mandel Humanities Center. Uh, sound editing is by Naomi Cohen. Website design and social media by Miranda Puri. Elizabeth Perry is a co-founder of the podcast, and today's hosts were Gina Tragiano from Neuroscience. Gina, thank you so much. Um, and me, John Plotz. So um, Elizabeth Perry and I are very eager to hear your comments, your criticisms, and your thoughts on today's discussion um, and on all of the topics that follow from it. So please write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, I think I invite you to check out related episodes on our website, recallthisbook.org. So from all of us here at RTB, thank you for listening.